What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Loot Bros Podcast. I'm your host, Resident Daryl, and today we've got something very special. I'm joined by my co-host of the Loot Bros Comic Cast, Josh Adams. What's up, brother? What's up, man? It's good to hear your voice. Absolutely, man. It's been a little while. It's been a yeah, few weeks, been a man. Minute. I, I, I honestly, uh, I, I was very, very excited about this. We've been planning this for several weeks now. We've actually had to reschedule twice. So uh, our special guest and uh, honorary game developer, uh, Mr. Ken Dunlop, thank you uh, so much for joining us. And man, and just uh, why don't you just take a second, tell everybody kind of who you are and what you do. Um, hi, guys. Yeah, so I am Ken Dunlop. I'm an indie game developer. And uh, I guess if you want to play something I've made, it's Super Space Slayer 2 on Google Play is all my work. It is, it's a space shooter I designed for phones where it's, the controls have been redesigned from the ground up, really. So it's, it doesn't play like other games, although it, it still plays well. So, uh, and nowadays I'm working on Super Space Galaxy, which is going to be on Steam. I should say Super Space Slayer 2 is also on Steam, as well as Google Play. And uh, Super Space Galaxy is going to be even bigger with... Uh, it's a very different kind of game. It uses much of the same graphics, but it's an open-world game where you can go anywhere and sort of like open like Skyrim or something where you can go anywhere from anywhere and there's nothing really stopping you. N- not even those annoying mountain paths they had in Skyrim where it was... I don't know. We could probably talk about the mountain paths later as well. They're just kind of annoying <laughs> to path around sometimes. I, I, th- I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. 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 Well, like I said, this is Loot Bros Podcast. Ken, we've been talking for a few weeks about getting you on. We do a very general video game podcast. Uh, basically, we talk about games and we make a bunch of dumb jokes, and that's kind of our shtick. Uh, Josh and I, we've done some deep dives into survival horror. Uh, we typically get together and cover comic books and other nerdy, cool things like that. Um, and I, I, I guess to get us up to speed on how we met, uh, I was in, I've joined a couple of these indie game dev um, Facebook groups. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to get into music for game development. Uh, not so much writing music score, although I have dabbled in it and I am interested in it. But there's been several games that I've heard over the years that actually take, you know, a song from a band and implement that into games. And I always thought it was really cool. And uh, I'm in a band. Uh, Josh has been in bands before. And, you know, you spend so much time writing music uh, and then you kind of want to like get as many people to hear as possible, put it in as many places as possible. Uh, and I was very inspired. Uh, listening to Mick Gordon, you know, when he wrote the Doom 2016 soundtrack. And I've kind of had it in my head that I wanted to contribute some music uh, to a video game. So anyways. Yeah, I was thinking that that's, I mean, that's kind of where I found your Facebook post saying, I want to make the soundtrack for a video game. And it it was kind of weird timing, really, because I'd just been doing some things on Fiverr.com looking for a a musician to make some more stuff for me. Because I've I've had mostly good experiences on Fiverr. I've had a few concrete things that have been made for me by artists and musicians and stuff and fiber so it's been mostly good stuff but i, I just got out of a, a a painful acrimonious not getting what i wanted out of fiverr for the first time and uh, then i found yeah you on facebook saying i want to make the soundtrack for a game and, and as well as just the fact that it was what i was after i was kind of interested in the the decisiveness of that as well like you had a clear goal there which is a good thing 
Absolutely. And I've got, man, as a, as a musician, I've got 30, 40 pieces of just like music that I've written, that I've programmed, that I put together. It's like, I don't really have anything to do with it, but it was kind of something I was vibing on. And then uh, I reached out to you. So we got in a small conversation. Matter of fact, we had a, probably about an hour and a half uh, Skype call and uh, it was great getting to know you, you know, talking about your work and some of the projects you're working on and are you have coming up. Uh, and then I reached out to Josh. I'm like, Josh, you know, this Josh has done artwork for my podcast. He's done artwork for my band. Josh is a you know, musician, an artist, all this stuff. I was like, you got to meet this guy, Ken. Like he's, uh, you know, he was very forthcoming and just kind of talking about his experiences and like, you know, let's, let's put together this podcast. Let's get him on here. Let's talk about music uh in video games and all that stuff oh you're mentioning uh just as sh short stories and things as well probably had yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah. uh because i've as well as the super space universe something i think i'll have to make later on is uh, a a different game, a horror game it started off kind of inspired by silent hill but i think it's not going to be any kind of silent hill ripoff now i think it, it is growing but uh, what I found is I'm pretty good. At, I'm pretty conversant in in the monsters and the hellscape side of it. Like, if you want me to, not even more monsters, but like more scenery and things, more more of the the netherworld. I think I can do. But what I wanted to do was find somebody who could understand the humans a bit better. I mean, not even understand them really, just sort of <laughs> sympathize with them more than I do. <laughs> Empathize with the human beings. Yes, it, that that is, yeah, is uh, transcendent. He is he's post human. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a bit of a Doctor Manhattan sometimes. I think so. I kind of, I'm going to need somebody to. Uh, not exactly explain the humans, but kind of write stories about them. And I, I figure Josh might be uh, what I'm looking for there. So that doesn't well, that means that if we go visit you in Buckingham, you're not going to be walking around naked like Doctor Manhattan, are you? <laughs> no, I was going to make that joke. <laughs> Giant dong. Don't think I uh, got the body for that. <laughs> None of us do. Neither did he. They had the CGI of that. <laughs> oh, did they? Just, just oh, they had some other guy. Didn't? Yeah, I think I. At the end of the day, I, sometimes I get furious that somebody got paid more money than I'll ever get paid in my life just to animate a giant blue penis. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, does the guy who who did Doctor Manhattan's expressionless face still get paid more than his body? Was the face painted onto the body, or was his whole just resting coma face? This brings up many questions. I don't think we have the answers to right now. <laughs> and of all the talented voice actors out there, this guy is getting paid t tons of money to be as monotone as possible. Is like, <laughs> exactly. Th that's a skill as well. Like I I've actually been, uh, oh, I, I'm, I've done a second layer of uh, voice acting for the the computer in my game because uh, I'm calling the computer Xerxes after the the first boring computer character in System Shock Two. Like there's uh, nice. th there's. Uh, because the fir the first computer is Xerxes, and then the he gets replaced by Shodan, who's kind of the villain, is a lot more interesting, and she's a female voiced computer, I guess <laughs> you could call it. But um, I, I thought he ought to sound like Xerxes, but actually, I, I think I put too much emotion into the second round of Xerxes voice acting, and it's a little bit worse now. I'll probably revert back to the first ones. So, I mean, ha having no emotion is is tricky as well. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, awesome, awesome. Okay, so what we've got is a handful of questions that we want to ask you so that the audience, our listeners, can get to know you, 
who you are, what you've done. And then after that, we're going to open it up to where you can just spill your guts about game development. You, I know you're uh, passionate about your blog and the things that you've been kind of putting out there into the internet. Uh, so we'll give you the floor to kind of talk about whatever you want to talk about. Sound good? Sure, yeah, because uh, well, th- there is something I definitely want to uh, make sure we talk about uh, in The Punisher. We'll, we'll probably bring up The Punisher later, but, <laughs> yes. but first, yeah, sure, uh, shoot the questions. Uh, Josh, so you see you see the common theme here, right? Like, he speaks to all of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Daryl's got the biggest man crush ever right now. He's like, oh, and his... And his and his accent makes you melt. I know. I understand. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to... I'm kind of weird sounding in the UK as well, by the way. We, we don't all sound like me. <laughs> so let's get let's get started with this. Uh, how did you end up getting into game development as a field? Like, what was your entry into that? Well, I guess what, what happens is I guess some of my earliest... When I've been playing video games since I think there was a Sesame Street game with really old... B colon drive floppy disks. It was called Sesame Street Learning Library. A giant that, blue floppy yeah. disk. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the years many of these things happened, but normally you can tell what year it was by exactly what video game had just been released. So it's right. it's, it's easy enough to look up. But uh, so I've definitely been playing video games for a long time. I some, somehow video games just sort of vibe with what I want to be doing. It's very sort of relaxing and sort of scholarly not <laughs> but uh <laughs> it, it's that kind of thing but um making them i i remember seeing things in magazines and stuff like when day of the tentacle was released which must have been 1994 or something yeah yeah mid 90s yeah just seeing kind of seeing the, the faces of the people who'd made these things just something as simple as seeing that humans had made this and the, the, this cool new game we'd bought was was made by humans, and that I I could maybe make. So I think after that, I definitely wanted to be some kind of game designer. Or I mean, I keep calling it game design. It's more kind of about making the decisions about what goes into the game. Right. right. Like like the guy who decided that Monkey Island ought to be about pirates, which I think was Tim Schafer. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a lot of a lot of those kind of video game rock star kind of guys, like Tim Schafer and John Romero, and I think some of the people in Blizzard as well explicitly wanted to be kind of rock stars as well as just game designers. It was a bit of a, a metal thing for them. I'm not really a want to be rock star, but I, I kind of want to be Peter Molyneux. I'd say is the <laughs> like Peter Pete, Peter Molyneux back when everyone thought he was cool. I'm about to say yeah, like the uh, old school Peter Molyneux. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's so possible more... Peter Molyneux was kind of founder. It's possible Peter Molyneux was never as awesome as I think he was. But but like what I believed Peter Molyneux was, I want to be that. <laughs> so you took a lot of inspiration, I guess, getting started from the early like point and click adventure game PC type stuff, rather well, than console be- game. Yeah, to begin with, I was on P- I was on PC games until the PlayStation Two. So. Gotcha. I was mostly mostly about that. Most of my console experiences were just going around to other people's houses and stuff gotcha. like that. It was a lot more yeah. distant. And I love so, that stuff too. Like I love Day of the Tentacle, Curse of Monkey Island games. I loved. I love the Space Quest series. Um, I, I, yeah, that's yeah. I can I can vibe with that too. That was I played Space Quest One. The the I think the remake of Space Quest One. I need a little bit of Space Quest, but even then, actually, like the the theme music for Space Quest is one of the things that gave my musician for uh, Super Space Slayer Two, no, and One, the, the the Super Space theme. One of the things that kind of went into the blender there was Space Quest. Nice. 
I gotta say, with uh, when it comes to PC games, my experience would be like Duke Nukem 3D, Duke Nukem Planet of the Babes, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Uh, nice, yeah. I just found uh, for, for stuff like that. If you haven't found Civi on YouTube, he's he's kind of risen to power on YouTube because he's filled this talking about first person shooters kind of niche. He's this sort of. I mean, his character is this sort of grumpy-sounding, good-natured guy who seems to be in a underground bunker or something like that. He's in super. He's pre- you, Daryl. <laughs> he's in some kind of underground super prison, and he's forced to play first-person shooters all day or something. Nice. He doesn't seem to mind, but he, he's really uh, come into his own, making videos about that. So he's done stuff about Duke Nukem and loads of that stuff. All right, so. You just you kind of enjoyed those games. I always sort of felt like you wanted to do that. I can I can that for me that's the where like for me I read read a lot of books, loved to read, loved comics. So at some point I was like, you know what? I should write books. I should write comics. I should draw this stuff. Or you know, people watch a lot of movies, and then at some point they're like, you know what? I should make a movie. So that's kind of that was for you. You just like you know what? I could make this. I could I could do this. That's cool. Yeah, man. I mean, but there is. I mean, and then I got into click and play, which I think might also have been nineteen ninety four, actually, or not long after that. And I was I was thinking because there is this big transition as well. There's a big transition from just playing them to building them. And I, I think right. for, for a long. And the thing is, I've had many years of just playing games and not really making them that much, but still kind of thinking about the design more than i think a, a just the average person would so i've spent a lot of years just collecting sort of video game anecdotes and theories and things which are coming out in the blog now nice but um yeah i think you, you need some of that background as well just taking it all in right right okay now have you taken any sort of did you take courses for game design or do you like just kind of learn as you go or uh, no, the programming well, side of it i think at the when i was starting to uh, be ready for university there were video game courses but i thought they were kind of dodgy at the time that that might have improved a bit I except except nowadays i'm not sure if i'd go to university period so i don't know if that's really <laughs> gone um things are getting strange with university and all the kind of old ways really but uh that might be outside the remit of this <laughs> outside <laughs> the remit of this video games blog but um nowadays no, I, you I, can about learn anything on youtube yeah, yeah well that, that's exactly what i was yeah that's exactly my position basically like why bother going to pretty much anywhere when you can just see it all on youtube like you've yeah, got there's, an, there's experts right here that are willing to share that information yeah, and and like I I listen to this guy on YouTube who talks about medieval weaponry and stuff. He's clearly enthusiastic, and he reads about medieval history all the time, and it it's kind of good. Like I mean, people complained about YouTube radicalizing people and taking them down rabbit holes and things sometimes, but the the much bigger positive side is that somebody who specializes in something can just dump the the product of all that specialization at you, and you know there it is. And and at the same time, they're not you know, safe in some ivory tower or like safe from criticism or anything. It's, it's, it's sort of a weird, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit like Plato's Academy with the, with, with all of its horror and all of its. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool thing. And there's uh, this, and it's a line from Starcraft, isn't it? War is coming and with all of its glory <laughs> and all of its horror. But I think that's, that's kind of what, I don't think that's what Plato was imagining necessarily, but that's kind of what I think it is in practice. Just Plato's Academy is here in, in all of its glory and all of its horror. Nice. 
right, so um, we you mentioned uh, uh, Super Super Space Slayer. Was that the first game that you worked on, or are there some other well, games that was you the th- first? Or um, because the thing is, I, I have a long history working with uh, Click and Play and and Click Team Fusion and Games Factory and that whole series. They mm-hmm. go by various names, which is kind of awkward, but they are. Uh, they're all part of the same series. And okay. so I have, like most people who use that stuff, I have a long string of uh, mostly fin- sort of half-finished games, barely started games. <laughs> and and some things I sort of finished. I, I don't know if I'm massively proud of them now, but I, I may well end up uh, exposing more of them. I've exposed a few of them on the blog already, like the Time Masters demo I've released to the world. I got you. So hopefully we can have links in there for the... At least the blog or something. Oh yeah, well yeah, we'll get your and everybody listening. We'll have all of his information, his blog, everything. All those links will be in the show notes, so you can go and check it out for yourself, uh, and and play the play the games and and follow the blog, and, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about uh, the Super Slayer and uh, Super Slayer Galaxy, all that stuff. <laughs> um, so how, how did this really begin? Because I was. Uh, working at Natural Motion Games as a tester. And at the time, the plan was to try and impress the boss by making <laughs> a game, right? Because I I thought nobody's going to take me seriously as some wannabe games tester and games designer unless I have made a game and designed a game. Because then once it... Got to hit them really with exists, old razzle-dazzle. <laughs> yeah, like that's going to be undeniable once I have an actual game. So um, the the... Kind of the area I was in at the time was we were making Clumsy Ninja, this uh, kind of an unusual mobile game that, like I said, had some traditional elements, but really it was a, a bit of a demo for their animation middleware. So it was I this gotcha. Wrigley sort of ninja character who could, I think Wrigley was the word really, that this technology makes characters Wrigley. That is, uh, <laughs> I think in, in GTA 5, if someone gets hit by a car, and they kind of flail around as they fall down. I think that's it right there. The, the, the ragdoll? Yeah, yeah, ragdoll um, physics. Well, not quite even. I think not full ragdoll even. I mean, there might be some sort of ragdoll physics kind of underneath it as well. But they're kind of rig- they're ragdolls with a bit of life. It's like halfway between full canned animation and just, you know, limp dead bodies. I gotcha. Very cool. Because like, when you kill people in Fallout 3, they, they ragdoll and it. It's kind of weird because I, I always found that they look because the animations are so stiff. They look kind of more you know lifelike when they're dead. Just... <laughs> so <laughs> do I. Well, when they're falling down the staircases and stuff, it's you think, oh, that's pretty good. And the animation's so dodgy most of the time that you're just not quite sure where you stand anymore. But yeah, so um, the, the animation middleware was their their main thing. But um, there was even talk about them wanting to make a game in space. I think. So and then, so I started looking at space shooters and I, I got a couple of grievances about them. I think because what happened, like most of my game design ideas come from playing games and thinking it'd be better if we did this, or we, at least we'd try something new if we tried this. So um, one thing I found wasn't a lot of the, the levels are too long because <clears throat> this is a, a mobile phone thing. Like you could be just waiting for a bus or something playing these games, right? And uh, some of them have like six minute levels where, you know, you've got 
six minute levels are fine if you want kind of mounting tension. And I'm sure you, I know you guys have experience with Resident Evil and stuff. It makes sense right. to have the checkpoints far apart and stuff like yeah. that. But it doesn't really work so well for a shooter. So I tried to make something that would have these quick little levels. And in the end, I, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, this is kind of a year of, of scheming on this thing. But in, in the end, yeah, I made Super Space Slayer 1 where the levels are kind of 22 seconds, but something still happens in them. And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a useful test in a way. Like, I think quite often people procrastinate in this stuff in a way. Like, you, you build the game and nothing much is happening, but the excuse is going to be, oh, just, just you know, wait for a while and something will happen, we promise, or it, it's going to take a long time. But I think sooner or later you've got to kind of get to the game you know the right and and quite often the game is something rather underwhelming sounding like you know point your gun towards the enemy and shoot as opposed to doing nothing or pointing your gun not at the enemy and shooting or you know that that's the game for quite a lot of games right and it doesn't sound mind-blowing when you put it that way but that's that's perfectly decent some of the best games ever are just you know shoot the bad guys and and run away if they get close or something isn't that right resident evil yeah pretty much (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so um, I realized the game was kind of tap the enemy before they can shoot at you. And, and later on, I introduced lanes for moving around as well, like in a Endless Runner. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so um, it kind of emerged out of what was happening at Natural Motion. But at the same time, I I lost my job at Natural Motion and, and nothing ever really came of it that way. So, uh, But I, I think the fates had uh, different plans in store for, for Super Space and all of that. Nice. Awesome. So when, you know, you've talked about, you talked about some of these games that you kind of cut your teeth on and you've talked about some of the things that like as early on made you think, I, I want to do this. What would you say is like your favorite game when it, when it comes down to like what is a perfect game to Ken? <laughs> what is what is the um, game that the, the gods created for Ken Dunlop? Well, it's um, something I was very enthusiastic about for a long time was Devil May Cry Three. Oh yeah. yeah! I mean, I guess you could. It, it got me at the right time for one thing. I think I was the right age to just bury myself in a game like that. It was university, and uh, that that opening cinematic of Dante fighting the. I don't know the seven hells, whatever they're called, the the dudes with the sides and everything, and all all the weird moves you could use, and all, all that stuff. That that was uh, that was definitely something I believed in for a long time. I think I've I must have maxed out red orbs on that eventually. I got got the PC version of that for my PC. I did video reviews of that. So. Uh, yeah, you know, and then I think we mentioned the. <clears throat> I, I guess I should mention as well. Like me and my brother used to do this series of game reviews. We're kind of done with it now, but it's uh, called Excalibur Reviews, and we did mm-hmm. a video about Devil May Cry Three. And then there's a bit near the end there where, where Dante is saying, "Yeah, this is what I live for. I'm absolutely <laughs> crazy about it." And, and I, I've never empathized with a video game character quite as much as that. I think. <laughs> so, I, so, so I finished the video review by saying, "Me too, Dante." Me too. Just, me too. You know, <laughs> that's me every time i got a big steak or some macaroni and cheese it's just <laughs> what i live for i'm crazy about it yeah so i mean it, I, I guess it's one of those things where i mean dante is kind of similar to mario in that they're they're kind of having the same emotions the player is supposed to be having <laughs> it's you know, a me like, adapte yeah yeah <laughs> 
I, I kind of did that joke as well. There's a, bit of dodgy, <laughs> there's a bit of dodgy platforming in the in that game as well. But yes. yeah, like Mario jumps around and he's kind of having fun, and you're supposed to be having fun too. So you're kind of kind of with him on that journey. <laughs> yeah, and nice. uh, I guess Dante works the same way. Although were I I got Devil May Cry five as well. That was also lovely. I think it's just a bit of a different time in my life when maybe maxing out on red orbs or something is not what I need to be doing with my time anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah, people but that change. was a beautiful game. Yeah, it was a beautiful game. And uh I, I like the uh the chainsaw motorbike electric yeah. thingy weapon. Rip a motorcycle in half and have dual chainsaws. Yeah, let's <laughs> but, see and like there are there are certainly games that are more mature and have you know a better <laughs> plot and all that. But yeah. man, when it comes to the aesthetics and just being a pretty game full of really cool like rad stuff, yeah, you, you know you've been playing this stuff for too long when the weird motorbike thing starts to make sense. Like it because <laughs> like, oh, there, yeah. there have been motorbikes in the series the whole way. Like so much of that stuff felt like they've actually kind of connected a few dots there and. What happened with like? I mean, certainly Dante. I guess spoilers for uh, Devil May Cry Five, but as well the moment where he gets uh, where the Dante sword exists <laughs> yeah. makes so much yeah. sense. Like because I was there, I was there for Devil May Cry One, where you have you start off with the Force Edge, which is your father's sword. It's very Japanese. Oh yeah, like, very much. Yeah, because well, that's one of the things that interests me about Devil May Cry as well. Like quite a lot of my favorite things are uh, they kind of look western right the stuff in devil may cry has like western looking characters in a western looking city with like the music and the fashion and all of it is just sort of fully western most of the swords are kind of western swords but then you you peek into those characters heads and it's all about their ancestors and swords and you know that they kind of it's very There's, Japanese from that point. Yeah, the, what's actually inside their heads is completely Japanese, and I'm, yeah, I don't very know if Eastern Jap- philosophies and yeah, I don't know if the and, oh, the cycle and stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of keen on the cycle as well, but like, it just seems like maybe the Japanese people couldn't help it. Even you know they they could make it all look Western, but at the same time they they couldn't. I don't know they they just didn't have the same sort of cultural background, so they end up with with secretly all, all the invisible stuff is completely Japanese. <laughs> that's kind of that's an interesting thing. Yeah, that's, that's how, how they, they get, get me. me too. The overtly Japanese stuff, I just turn I can't do. But it's the Capcom esque Japanese stuff masked as Western. It's just like I freaking love it. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I guess the yeah is a, is a real moment for me when Dante gets the Dante sword because of course the Sparda sword already existed, so it makes a certain amount of sense. Like why can't, I think it even crossed my mind at some point. Like if there's a Sparda sword, why isn't there a Dante sword? And like years later, someone did that, and oh, and of course he he gets this magic sword by stabbing himself with his old sword. I, I feel so weird about. I guess I'm glad I've got the platform for this now, actually, because I feel so weird about that. No one else has called this out either. Like it seems, it seems to be a real kind of thumbs up for kind of ritual suicide. You know, like, <laughs> like Dante gets to the end of his childhood, finds his childhood home again in ruins. He decides to stab himself with a sword, and it's the best decision he ever made. <laughs> That's kind of uh, what happened. Cool. I mean, because I know there's there's 
stories in Hinduism and stuff where I, I forget who it is. I'm not going to even say the name, probably pronounce it wrong, but like somebody throws themselves in their funeral pyre and they, they come back in their next life as a, I don't know, powered up or something because they did it right. It was the best decision they ever made. See, that's what Robert Downey Jr. did just with drugs. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Yeah, that. Those are very good games. I always liked games that had, and Daryl and I recently have been going through the Resident Evil Silent Hill games, and we 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 talked about Parasite Eve. I don't know if you ever played that one, but that was another I've one that a had. Few things one about that. Never played it. Yeah, that was another one that had. You know, on the surface, it was very. You know, it had a very Western feel to it. You know, especially your character. She's blonde, and you know all that stuff, but. Everything about that game was Japanese, you know, JRPG style. Like, I mean, it felt very Japanese, but it wasn't. It was so, you know, basically that's, that's Final really cool. Fantasy under the surface. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's like X Files, but really, it's Final Fantasy. Yes. So I can dig that. All right. So when it comes to when it comes to these games that you're working on, what is the experience that you're wanting your players to come away with? Like, what uh, you you talk about the aesthetics and the designs and the crazy stuff that's in devil may cry like what do you want people to come away with after they play your games well um i mean super space <coughs> slayer 2 was was more of an experiment in a way I mean, it's I'm, I'm genuinely proud of what i made and everything but that was right. uh that was kind of a matter of can i make a shooter and it was all it almost began to impress the boss i mean that stopped being the project after a while but but um super space galaxy though i've got a much clearer idea of what I want players to think, and it's it's supposed to give a sense of freedom and discovery. Was uh, some of my major linchpins, and a, a lot of the the technology in it is based around that. So I've got it so that it makes a new galaxy. And, well, yeah, every time you play, it has a new galaxy seed you can go for. So where the stars are positioned and stuff like that is randomized. I mean, the, the same galaxy seed will always get you the same galaxy, so you can go back to the same galaxy, but at the same time, it's kind of random. And I, well, random within restrictions as well. I'm actually having to, probably going to do some tough maths to make it so that uh, the the the, the uh, suns with fuel in them are, are spaced properly, like they've got to be the right distance from each other, but still all like cover all the available territory and stuff. And I've got to find a way of like making that randomizable while still being within these restrictions. And there's a lot of kind of tough stuff like that. So it's been a, you know, it's been an expensive decision in a way to follow this, but that's what I've, I've tried to do there. I mean, uh, I mean, I've been listening to various things on YouTube. One of these guys I've been listening to, I've kind of stopped now is Grant Cardone, who I know some people will say Grant Cardone is a scam artist. I don't know. He is rich. And if he's a scam artist, he's a scam artist who has some great advice. And I haven't given him very much money. So, you know, it's <laughs> fine. But anyway, like he, he one of his lines is, uh, don't dial down your ambitions, dial up your actions. So and that's I feel that's a, a good rationalization of what I'm doing because it, it would be very easy for me to just say, eh, I'll just make a normal shooter because I have the graphics for it. And I could much more easily make a kind of normal shooter game where you, you move around and the scenery scrolls underneath you and you go upwards, but something like that already exists. Right. And uh, I'm not sure what I'm making here exists that much. And, it, and I, can, I can see why, because it's been 
dreadfully difficult to make and <laughs> I've had to uh, get through a lot of uh, obstacles and learn a lot to make it happen but I think when I'm when I'm done I'll have something a lot more unique than just you know here, here's a shooter where the scenery scrolls underneath you and you, you shoot upwards at things awesome well and you know anything worth doing is worth doing well you know especially if it, if you're going to put your name on it so you know I applaud that idea of pushing it even you know doing hard things is that's how yeah. you do something really cool. And you were surprised what you can do as well. Like if you just, if you look at the top of the mountain and say, no, we're going to get there somehow. If you if you use that as the linchpin rather than your comfort zone, you're going to find that you can do some surprising things. Right. And, you know, I, I, obviously I'm not a game designer, but when it comes to my artwork, when it comes to when I'm writing a story or when I'm you know working on a comic book or anything like that, you know, it, there's a temptation to reach a point where you're like, this is good enough. And, you know, I, I I try to push myself beyond, I'm satisfied with this. If there's anything I can do to make it better, I'm going to push a little bit further. And I think that's what takes a good game and differentiates that from a great game is they don't just reach a, a ceiling and say, okay, this is good enough. It's, I, I'm going to make this better than what other people have made. I want to do something that other people haven't tried. I want them to play this and think, wow, this is something different. Yeah, because I, mean, I guess what I've found in the, the indie game market is there are plenty of games that look exactly like they were made by one person. Because I'm, I'm in the same indie games groups you are, I think, on Facebook a lot of the time. And you get loads of little games where someone says, I've made a game. And it's it's probably fine. You know, It probably lasts <laughs> about six minutes. It looks exactly like one person made it. It's probably a perfectly functional game. Like, but at the same oh, time, you shouldn't have. Yeah, but but the <laughs> the world is the world is full of perfectly functional games, and it's gotten gotten pretty competitive. Like I, I right. read, uh, I mean, like a book I'd really recommend. Actually, if you care about game design and stuff, your listeners, uh, Masters of Doom, I got into because I, I encountered John Romero at some uh, gaming event, and I got a signed copy of Masters of Doom. Just not not bragging, just just saying, but uh, <laughs> but the the book is really good because it's flex. yeah, it's got all the. Uh, <laughs> I think you might have touched me, you guys, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it's a really good book for uh, giving a really thorough overview of how not even an overview, like a lot of intimate details about how Doom came to happen and the whole games industry in the nineties. But uh, actually, oh dang, I've, I've forgotten. I was getting all excited about that, and I've forgotten what point I was going to make for that now. <laughs> he got so wrapped up what, in the fact that was he I, touched John Romero. <laughs> yeah, what was I talking? John Romero has uh, fancy shoes. There you so go. That was the main thing. Like I expect him to have a like fancy rock star shirt and fancy rock star hair, but uh, he has fancy yeah. shoes as well. Yeah, well, uh, you were talking about how you know there's so many games that are functional, but they're all basically the same game. Oh, that that's right, that's right. Yeah. So my my thought was it, it mentions in the book like when John Romero was first getting started there. You could make a game called Manic Miner, and I think, uh, was it Manic Miner? He made some game with the jetpack or something, which was probably fine at the time, because you know, at the time there weren't really any computer games. You had you had this big old expensive computer you'd bought, and so few games that pretty much anything on there was amazing. That's how it used to be when we were at school. You had a computer, and finding anything, even a text adventure, was kind of exciting. Right, but, but but that that age is done. It, it says in the book, like in Romero's time, computers needed games, and 
that's kind of not true anymore. Like, there's there's plenty of games, thanks, actually. I mean, I feel like the whole games industry could just disappear for years at a time, and people would notice, maybe. They would probably even be annoyed there weren't new games coming in, but that's just kind of a novelty thing. You would actually find plenty of old games to catch up on. There were, I mean, there are probably online games now that can replace your real-life wholesale. So right. there's like oh, a thousand that- lifetimes worth of games out there. So I figure just making you know, a pong or something is no good anymore. Right. So I agree. I actually, uh, I told my daughter the other day, it might've been yesterday we were talking and I said, I've got more games in my house, in my possession than I have hours left of my life. (laughs) By the way, I need to buy this new game. I bought two games that right after that conversation. But like I was saying, like I have more games than I have time left on this earth. Yeah, so like picking a game, it's really got to speak to my interest because at this point now, yeah, we're not, it's not even about money. It's about time. You know, like time yeah. is the ultimate yeah. currency. Yeah, sure. So is. The game's got to be interesting to give it the time to play it. Yeah. And what I've found as a experienced game thinker about it is I go to gaming, well, back, back in the uh, before time, before the COVID hit, I was going to gaming events and <clears throat> doing things there. And and what I found is actually I, I can kind of suss out a game just by looking at it for I think there'd be a few seconds even. Like you 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 see it, you see like if some character's running around, you you, you at least see the kind of what the next minute will look like from the first few seconds. Mm-hmm. And if you play for fifteen minutes, you know roughly what the next twenty hours are going to look like. Like mm-hmm. it's and, and you can just kind of see all the way through. So you, you do get beyond it to a certain extent. You get and I think to begin with, it's just a, a thing of wonder way of just, you know, you don't know anything and you're just, you are as a child. But uh, eventually you, you learn more and more, and then you start getting all sort of teenage and sarcastic and analytical about it. You start to, <laughs> to see, you start to have seen some of these things before. And eventually, I guess, you just kind of become a weary old man where you've, you've seen it all before full stop and only something really radically new is going to make a dent anymore. Right. You're just like, yeah, this is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> or or even the stuff that isn't rubbish, you know, it's it's still just something you've done before. Right. And and certainly most of my favorite, I guess, yeah, you look back and you realize most of your favorite games are things that are either really weird, like a lot of the weirdness in Metal Gear and stuff is right. going to be hard to reproduce, or it's something really well done, like Devil May Cry, which I guess is somewhat weird as well. But really, it's, it's the, the craft that's put into that basic concept of let's fight demons, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then polish it to the absolute shiniest it can be. Yeah. That's devil may cry five in a nutshell right there. Weird, yeah. interesting, and very polished. And <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, I'm curious about this galaxy game, super galaxy, because I know that it, it sounds, it sounds like it's got a little bit of a no man's sky mass effect sort of flavor to it which is something i don't think i've ever seen on a mobile game oh well um well i mean super space galaxy is going to be just steam but uh super space slayer 2 was the google play thing i, I did listen I to you. a bit of uh mass effect soundtrack and stuff a lot of uh a lot of kind of 80s i listened to a lot of synthwave music mm-hmm. kind of 80s style stuff except it's it's not really 80s it's more like if the 80s never ended which in some ways i guess they didn't so so they go but yeah, I'm, it, it's supposed to be. I mean, some of the design is actually still yet to be made in a way. I know you'll probably go out and 
do quests and things. So I'm still building the cities we all sent out to do quests and stuff. So in some you. ways, I'm making this thing up as I go along, but I'm doing it based on the principles. I think that's right. what that's what makes it better. I mean, I one of my blog posts is about uh, kind of that process. Like I talk about homunculi just because I can't, mo- mostly just because I like the word homunculi, <laughs> but, it, but it is it is kind of relevant. It's about uh, because apparently back in, I don't know, it was the 1500s or something, the alchemists were clearly kind of trying to mess around with growth. And I really like old, bad ideas. They're so much more interesting sometimes than ideas that actually work. <laughs> but the, the alchemists were fumbling around with growth, trying to grow an artificial human. And they had some weird ideas about, like, taking manure, just horse manure, because I guess horse manure <laughs> makes plants grow. And then you put blood in with the horse manure or something or no no so, no hang on no sorry first you put your semen in with the horse manure and then you put wow. some and uh, that uh, took a turn uh, yeah you put you put well of course you need some semen in there and uh <laughs> gonna have to put some semen in there just just cooking with alchemists and then uh, after uh 30 days i think maybe 40 days the hot the uh or was it? No, 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 I'm getting this wrong. I'm never going to make a baby at this rate. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's rotten meat. That's what it is. You, you have rotten meat because rotten meat spontaneously generates flies. Then <laughs> I think you, you wait for the... Yeah, not right. And, and then uh, anyway, so some sort of combination of rotten meat and horse manure and flies and blood and semen and somehow, and then you, you heat this mixture up, it starts to move. And, it, <laughs> and, it turns in... and then you end up with Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> <and> it... <laughs> it's uh, political jokes here. And, uh, and oh you get a you get a little transparent guy and you feed that guy blood until they thicken up into a real baby. And then you've got a real baby. And okay. of course... And of course, okay. none of this none of this works. But the the and mostly that was just there to be a colourful story. But the point is that the, this this was uh, this was being done because of preformationism, where they believe that uh, each sperm cell has a fully formed human body inside it. And uh, and I love the uh, I love the way this idea finally ended as well. The because. Uh, Thinking backwards, like if each human, if each human is like a, I don't know, enlarged sperm cell, that means that Adam's testicles had <laughs> everybody in them. It just oh really small, just, just okay. dragging those it, things around. Basically, well, what, they were just really did, tiny, though. That's the thing. You just laid out the perfect top of the market steam game. <laughs> it, well, I, Oh man, Adam's, 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 like, uh, just calling it Adam's testicles is like guaranteed clicks right there. <laughs> there you go. I mean, like you could call it a simulator, you know, Adam's testicle simulator, or or build a body simulator. And then I still prefer how much you lie down beside me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's something that turns up once in a while. I think some of the Castlevania games have Dracula with an alchemy lab that makes homunculi. I think what a homunculus is seems to be a bit flexible i've even seen these uh annoyingly if you look up homunculi now you get these sensory homunculi that have big hands and it's something to do with the the number of nerve endings you have in different body parts and stuff i don't i don't care for it. i don't want those but uh, it sounds like a silent hill enemy yeah like big hands monster maybe it's something in silent hill homecoming or something but, uh, anyway the point is that that all this fascinating alchemy was happening because they thought the the human body was fully formed from the get-go 
and just needed to be enlarged. And I've realized that's kind of a mistake people can make with creative stuff as well, where you, you think you have the whole idea all at once to begin with, and then all you've got to do is just build all the pieces, and it'll all just go perfectly according to plan, and you just have to enlarge the homunculus up until it's <laughs> and just just feed the little guy blood until it's big enough basically but uh, i mean I, I guess you do have to feed it blood but it's you know you put it together piece by piece really i got you that's what the blog post is about but mostly it was also about the fun research i got to do <laughs> I, I think the uh, the alchemist had an amazing name as well i think something to do with paracelsus i think <laughs> nice i bet his lab <laughs> smelled terrible <laughs> oh, here, oh, here we go. I'm, I'm able to get this up. So we've got a Paracel... Oh, he was called Theophrastus von Hohenheim. And uh, I think it just gets, just gets better the more you look at like these guys. I feel like you just cast a spell and Daryl's head turned into a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> I got ho- horse manure, dead flies, and semen everywhere. I don't, I'm trying to build something. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to make a game, right? <laughs> this is, ultimately, that's the ingredients for making a game. Daryl's wife is like, you better not be using my good cupcake pans. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a bit lost now. It's hard to know how to <laughs> follow, follow up all that. Right. Well, we, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like we kind of uh, covered a lot of of what you know what i daryl and i had as questions what are some of the other things that you wanted to uh to talk about or or <laughs> share that you're working on or just all right well um if, if the floor is wide open i think uh my top priority i have a massive list of things we could talk about <laughs> but um I, I guess this this comes in because uh my my side project which is codenamed scary town so far and is going to have monsters and kind of Silent Hill and, and Pan's Labyrinth material as well, because I, I like Pan's Labyrinth. It's going to be kind of like that. It's about it's going to be about offices. It's kind of like office space crossed with Pan's Labyrinth, I guess. That sounds amazing. So, yeah, because I mean, I've liked how people have responded to the idea as well. Like I've I've just mentioned it to a few people and shown a few sketches I've had made and stuff. And to begin with, I was kind of thinking, like, if I talk about horror games in an office, are people just going to say, but Ken, why would you want to make a horror game in an office? Nothing scary ever happens there. Offices are peaceful, prosperous places. Because uh, <laughs> they kind of are. But then pretty much everyone I've mentioned this to has kind of gone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I'm all about not, not, not even anything very verbal, just kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess everyone has the same pain there. So I guess I'd, I'd take... So I guess the big idea was that most horror, I think, is about scarcity. I, I have, I have kind of, a blog post that doesn't quite—I didn't quite say scarcity, but I've kind of got this in one of the blog posts. I think most horror is about scarcity, and I just got done watching Sweet Home kind of by right. mistake. But it's this—I think South Korean show. South South Korea is the Korea where they're allowed things, isn't it? So. Yeah. Right. It's always South Korea <laughs> making the things that are allowed to leave South Korea. But uh, yeah, the this show where they, uh, I think, a, a it's a mist, isn't it? Like the, the what even is it? Something really bad happens anyway. There's a curse or something, and monsters are roaming the streets, and people are turning into monsters, and they've got to worry about running out of food. And you know, it's a good show and all, but I think it's a good example of how most horror is about scarcity you just take a bunch of people living in 
the real world, and you just kind of plop scarcity on them, and there you go. Mm. And that that's fine. I'm, but I figure there's there's plenty of that, and there's there's something else where there's something closer to real life. And uh, one of the things I I was digging in, I've done a lot of uh, looking into this with an artist of mine who uh, who's drawn me some of the sketches and things, and because there was a bunch of movies all seem to be made in 1999. Like um, the Matrix, yeah, it was a very good year, and uh, the Matrix, American Beauty, and Office Space, and I guess a Fight Club as well. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all kind of they're all kind of movies about people being miserable, even though I think there were plenty of jobs and stuff, and and there was no maybe the yeah, I think the news probably wasn't telling them to be as afraid. No, nothing was explicitly going wrong. They were just kind of bored. Right. They just kind of didn't like working in cubicles and things. There's the existential hell of having to go to work in the morning. Yeah, that that kind of thing. I mean, that actually wouldn't be a bad... <laughs> it's almost the tagline right there, really. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just existential hell. Yeah, so it, it was something more like that. And I guess I, I liked psychological horror anyway. I much prefer it to be just somebody curled up in a box somewhere. <laughs> right. If it was a horror movie, I'd rather have someone just curled up in a box somewhere hallucinating than fighting zombies in many ways. Right. So uh, something like that. And yeah, just just existential work hell. So I had the idea of uh, you'd have your protagonist who's probably like half American and half Japanese because that's kind of what Silent Hill is. I wanted his ethnicity <laughs> to be kind of a tribute to that. Nice. And then he would spend some of the time in the office world it'd be kind of like pan's labyrinth in kind of the human world there and then at the right times he would kind of descend into the basement and there'd be some kind of dark reflection of what was happening in the office world and um, what what i was one of the things i was hoping to uh pick your brains about josh was that uh yeah like i say i, I think i can i can handle this hellscape i've got <laughs> i've had some useful dreams about silent hill even i had uh it's just a theme park for me. We're not even scared of Silent Hill anymore. It's like just a cozy place I can go. I had this this dream where we go to Silent Hill and there's this bridge across an abyss. And I just kind of woke up thinking, oh, that's pretty useful. I can put that in my game. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all that. But I figured what's actually missing from all this is some of the human characters and what they're doing. Right. And so I'm, I'm less sure about how to handle them. Because I mean, in Pan's Labyrinth, what you have is... Uh, I mean, the main. I mean, it's not just Captain Vidal, but in, in Pan's Labyrinth, Captain Vidal is roaming around. He's this violent captain who everyone's clearly afraid of. But at, at the same time, you kind of know, like, if everybody ganged up on Captain Vidal, they could take him, right? <laughs> so, so it's it's not just him. I think they did a good job with this in the movie. It's it's not just him. It isn't just this one Satan figure doing everything. It's that they're kind of letting him. You know, like nobody quite right. wants to be the first one to raise a hand to the authority figure or or they're not quite courageous enough to even gang up on him. So it's kind of everybody's fault, even though it's kind of his fault. But I mean, so the the little girl experiencing all this goes to sort of a fact. I think it's not a fantasy world. It looks very much like it's a fantasy world and this coping mechanism for the war. Yeah, they keep it very ambiguous. Like even at the end of the movie, you're not sure whether any of that stuff really happened or whether that was all in her head yeah. i think at least uh you get guillermo del toro whatever he's called yeah. he uh yeah. i think canonically it's real and there's a couple of symbolic hints in there i think there's quite mm-hmm. a bit about uh having two eyes having having two eyes and not just one eye right all the, all the bad guys kind of have one eye and the 
the wiser people have two eyes. So I think that the second world is real, kind of canonically, but at the same time, yeah, it's very much open to interpretation. But I was, I was, I guess I was watching that and thinking, hey, this is this is great. This is like a Silent Hill movie. This is the best yeah. Silent Hill movie. Yeah, it's gorgeous too. Yeah, and uh, so I guess fleshy monsters. That was another thing, like. <clears throat> one artist I actually had to talk with about, uh, I think he came up with terms like flaky and like zombies are flaky. I'm, I forget quite what words he used, but uh, yeah, just zombies just... with ashy elbows. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Is that in your short stories or something? <laughs> zombies with ashy. Yeah, but um, I wanted to. So this all kind of came together over many years, I guess, into we should make something about a guy who's in an office. Maybe he he's just sort of drifting through life and he, he goes to Silent Hill, Pan's Labyrinth land. I, I have the main monster all planned out. It's going to be kind of centered around these black eels. It's, it's going to be kind of skin bag guys filled with black eels, and the the eels are kind yeah. of the real the real monster. So I have this whole kind of eels expanded universe growing in my head. Nice. That, that's going to be the plan there, but that that is just concepts and things mostly so far. I made a little demo of walking forward with a torch that uh, I don't isn't really going to be the game, but it sort of illustrates some things. I think right, and and uh, I, I guess. As well as just that, that's what I'm talking, what I'm uh, working on. I, I guess I wanted to talk about all that because of uh, what happens at the end of season one of The Punisher. And uh, <laughs> I, I think if this is now a long thing, actually, this is good timing because I think I might have said something about that at the beginning. And this has become a real kind of clickbait thing. Like you've got to listen to this whole podcast <laughs> that's right. to find out what happens. You won't at the believe end. what happened. Yeah, only <laughs> real Punisher fans can possibly last to the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is this has come full circle at last. Um, yeah. So um, what was I? Silent Hill three and things. I ended up thinking about Silent Hill three a lot more than two. Two is the one everyone likes. It's a very classy game, but I think maybe because of the Jung stuff and things, there's some. Right. I read a book about Carl because uh, the videos I listen to about Silent Hill keep talking about Carl Jung and stuff. Right. So uh, I've I've done a bit of that. I just listened to a video recently about overlaps between Tolkien and Carl Jung. Even like they they both hmm. were both very kind of creative, and they they had kind of similar visions because in some ways they're they're just arguably experiencing their own brains quite directly, or you know the collective unconscious or whatever you think they're experiencing. It's something they both have access to anyway. Right. That that much is for certain. But uh, so uh, Silent Hill three. But uh, what struck me was, uh, I guess, yeah, the reason I wanted to bring this up was when I first saw Daryl's Facebook profile, Daryl had a Punisher skull on his Facebook. That is me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, actually, no, it was a Christmas Punisher skull, even. It, it was. was. <laughs> yes, Merry, Merry Christmas, criminals. <laughs> Deck the halls with dead gangsters. There you yeah, go. Yeah, so I mean, I guess th- those who who don't do Marvel comics or whatever, I guess yeah, the Punisher is a, a vigilante who absolutely does kill people. Like, it's it's kind of weird how rare that niche is in comics. I think it's more of a product of censorship than anything else. But and, right. and just comics are kind of moralizing as well, I guess. Like, I mean, they're moralizing with Punisher as well, aren't they? I mean, they're they're constantly talking about the morality of what Punisher does in Punisher stories. It, it's kind of since it's the big preoccupation of comics really it's kind of <laughs> it's like don't you realize what you're doing is bad yeah bam oh, wait 
Like you're you're killing people. That's a that's a crime. Yeah, but they're criminals. Bam, bam. <laughs> they would I kill love how everybody has a problem with it, but nobody really tries to stop him. Nobody really tries to stop him. <laughs> And there's always you know, a point in each story arc where the leading detective or agent that's chasing him down has to team up with him. It's like, well, I'll let it slide for a little bit. Boom, let me save your life a couple times, and then I'll let you go, and we'll start this whole cat and mouse yeah. thing all over again. Yeah, what I love is Karen, who I think is the uh, the biggest, I think she's Daredevil's girlfriend or something in yeah, Daredevil's yeah, show. Yeah. I haven't seen that, but I, I totally ship Punisher and Karen, because because <laughs> Karen is the biggest Punisher apologist. She clearly really cool-hearted. <laughs> she loves him. Shoot, It's just that Punisher was so miserable, they can never be together, but... All right, you should you know, watch. He's uh, like, I Daredevil live for season this. two. I'm crazy about this. <laughs> that, that's too <laughs> cheerful for Punisher, though. He's yeah. It looks like one of his major powers just seems to be he's so miserable. He doesn't care how much pain he's in. Right. <laughs> he he kind of reminds me of uh, Rawsarch and Watchmen as well. Like, yeah, very much that nihilistic. <laughs> of, yeah, well, it's 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 the fact that they're both weirdly principled. And yeah. Rawsarch has got that mask in his face that's got the black the black ink on the, the white fabric and stuff. And it's it's that's kind of explicitly of supposed to be about some things about objectivism and stuff. That's probably a whole other topic. But it's this specific sort of black and white worldview being shown on his face, basically. And that's kind of what Punisher is doing. Like Apart from the fact that, that Rawsarch doesn't seem to use guns, I'm kind of struggling to see the difference between them even. Right. And then they've both got that kind of binary approach where either you're a good guy who deserves to live or you're a criminal who gets shot or yeah. like in such cases <laughs> beaten to death. To death. Yeah. yeah, just beaten to death or cleaved to death or whatever. And at the same time you could question how principled they really are, but they're they're both weirdly principled. Like right. most and most comic book characters are weirdly principled, I think. Well there's that whole okay. thing. So um Anyway, what I'm gradually working my way towards here is that uh, at the end of season one of The Punisher, you have The Punisher fighting Billy Russo, his his best mate. Right. And that uh, they fight on the merry-go-round where his family were killed, I think, in this continuity. Right. The, right. the cartoons I saw that his family killed at a, a nice wholesome picnic. <laughs> the story <laughs> keeps changing, but the, the important details are the same. But uh, yeah, he fights him on this merry-go-round and... Uh, it's the merry-go-round his family were killed at. I mean, you could argue that the merry-go-round going round and round is kind of his his trauma cycle as well. Like he's sitting yeah. there watching this merry-go-round, this cycle just going on and on. And uh, and he smashes up a mirror and he take he drags Billy Russo's face through the mirror and it's it sounds horrible. Apparently, when they were filming this stuff, the the actor's screaming was so horrible that that uh, what's he even called the, the Punisher guy. Yeah, John Bernthal. Oh, 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah, J- John Bernthal honestly thought he was hurting him because <laughs> so, the screaming was just horrible. And it, it's a scene where you really show that the, the Punisher is not a nice guy. He's just acting out of kind of sadism and, and revenge here, really, more than yeah, anything else. Yeah, he's very bent. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost thought, like, because normally what happens in these things is, like, I think like, some continuities, the Joker gets kicked into some acid or something and he comes out all evil. They probably moved well away from that by now, but you know, normally when the villain falls into some acid, it's a mistake, right? At the very right, least, right. at the very least, Batman did not intend to punch him into the acid. Maybe he punched him. Probably didn't intend him to get into the acid. And if it's Spider Man, it's very likely that someone's going to blame Spider Man for not rescuing them in some weird way, even of though Spider Man's, yeah, that whole thing. 
But in the Punisher's case, the Punisher is so mean that he's just deliberately messing up this guy's face in a broken mirror. Just and so I'm going to so, leave you alive. Yeah, I just kind of right. feel like it's it's as if Batman just got so pissed off with the Joker, he just kicked him into some acid and said, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, how's that feel?" <laughs> just amazing. Yeah, the Punisher definitely uh, leaves him as physically distraught as he is mentally distraught. Yeah, like he yeah, breaks I guess him that. into pieces. And it's um, it's kind of what happens in season three is kind of weird because he doesn't even remember what happened, and he's weirdly vulnerable through hell of season two as well. He's just he's just a mess. He gets PTSD when he sees the Punisher, or, yeah. or something like that. Anyway, I don't want to misuse terms here, but yeah, no, he's that, weirdly... that, that was very that's that's pretty spot on. And actually, I feel like the second season was very weak because of that, because it it focused so much on like relationships and even like sex that it got away from like, wait a second, we're 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 working on trauma here, and like they didn't really. I mean, yeah, yeah I like guess it might have gotten a bit too bit too romantic. Yeah, I guess so because you have uh, you have freaking Jigsaw Face making out with this therapist, don't you? Right. I, I think Jesus, like old Jigsaw Face, has a girlfriend. Well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Just <laughs> you don't have a cool scar, dude. Yeah, you yeah, got like face smashed up. Chick stick scars. But uh <laughs> I mean that's a another bit of a tangent for us. But uh yeah, so what I was thinking was that that whole um smashing up his face at the merry go round thing, that that has so much overlap with exactly what happens near the end of Silent Hill three for no readily apparent reason. Because <laughs> what happens near the end of Silent Hill three is I mean you have Heather, this teenage girl, and I, I think Silent Hill Three is quite explicitly Jungian as well because she, she's oh, yeah. dealing with she's dealing with her shadow self and things quite openly there. Yeah, very she, clearly. Because she, she, yeah, because I guess yeah, sounds like uh, Joss knows these things. Yeah, because she starts off, she doesn't know who she is. She thinks she's Heather, but then she has Claudia, this weird cultist, coming at her saying, "Remember me and your true right. self as well." And so she's explicitly been called out to like recognize her true self, and she's got half a soul because half of her soul was is left in Silent Hill or something. Right. And she's really I, I've seen diagrams left. of this stuff and it still seems weird, but, <laughs> but anyway, I so she's, the hours and hours of breakdown of it. And I still don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I think you've got to be a, a warlock or something to really understand this stuff. But um, yeah, so it's explicitly about integrating her personality and everything and encountering her shadow self, which is all kind of textbook young material. Right. In fact, actually, what, while I'm leading up to this as well, I also want to drop that uh, I forget if this was mentioned in a video. It mentioned that like Heather's hair, right? It, she's a carefully designed character. She's dyed her hair blonde as kind of a disguise on oh, one right, level. Her and, and, and her normally, father is supposedly kind of hiding out and yeah. trying to assume a new identity. Yeah, so on that level, there's that. But uh, also, normally I think in these things, like blonde hair equals good and light, and dark hair equals dark and evil quite often. Like, if there's bad, like, I think some of David Lynch's stuff, definitely, you have a blonde girl as the good girl, and then, like, the girl with black hair as the kind of dangerous girl. Oh, yeah, but but uh, what, what's happening with Heather's hair, I think this was mentioned in a video, but not my conclusion about it. What's happening with Heather's hair is she's got her hair dyed blonde, but her dark roots are showing through kind of at the bottom there. But then you realize that's exactly what's happening to her character in the story as well. She's sort of oh nice. I never thought she, about that. I I think I put that together myself. This this might be the first drop of this info in in history. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a, a Loot Bros exclusive. 
Yeah, Luke Bryan's exclusive, The Secret of Heather's Hair, revealed at last. <laughs> so I think, yeah, her, her darkness is showing through a bit, even though she's kind of trying to hide it. So the it's all there. But um, so Heather fights, I think it's called Memory of a Lesser. And part of the reason this stuck with me so hard is that I, I finished Silent Hill 2 in my little box set thing and immediately moved on to 3, which might have been kind of a bad idea. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I was probably staying up a bit late anyway, and I fought Dark Heather and and died, I think. I failed, and then I just said, well, I better go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I kind of, that must have that must have been an optimal scenario there, to stick Dark Heather into my head forever, really. Just try to go to bed after that. <laughs> just, just all the horrible noises and freaking Dark Heather and, and all of it. So that sunk deep into my psyche. But uh, but um, so there's there's that there's Heather versus Dark Heather, but there was also Heather's phobia for mirrors. Yeah, where uh, I, th- I think early on she looks in a mirror and it doesn't seem like much of the time there there is such a thing. I think it's called spectrophobia or something, whatever. It's it's fear of mirrors, and it is a bit weird. Mirrors are kind of weird, and she they can she, be creepy. And yeah, yeah, she even she makes a few throwaway comments about not liking mirrors and things. Yeah, I mean, you could probably game. talk about kind of teenage body image issues anyway, but just she talks about the person on the other side of the mirror isn't the real you, just an imposter, and it's and that's that's just what happens if you investigate a mirror really early in the game. I think it's it, it seems kind of sensible in context, and I think it's another place there's a lot of David Lynch influence in Silent Hill as well because David Lynch very much likes doppelgangers. Oh yeah, I, I think the number of doppelgangers in his work has just gone up as the, <laughs> as the years go on. Really, yeah, it's a common theme for him, man. And David Lynch has this way of, ma- especially with Twin Peaks. Like a lot of his movies are just dread the whole way through, but Twin Peaks could be the most lighthearted, <laughs> silly. Uh, old-fashioned soap opera crap and then all of a sudden it could turn on you in a flash and be the scariest thing you've ever seen yeah like, and it I find could go even, from even, goofy to horrifying like a, <laughs> in a flash and that's somehow even scarier that way yeah it's very uh doesn't, doesn't stick to a genre which i kind of like but I, I was just looking at my box set of david lynch kind of and i, I suddenly realized looking at just the images of all those different movies i realized something horrible happens in each of those movies <laughs> like that just seems to be a really important part of the experience for him <laughs> who hurt this man <laughs> yeah well i, I think he, i think you find it kind of funny as well it's the funny that and we could probably talk about evil a bit as well i like have uh, developing views on evil but uh <clears throat> partly because of the the young stuff but uh yeah I, I think david lynch thinks it's really essential to the story in a way to have something horrible happen normally squishing people's heads yeah <laughs> I, I find he's kind of and not just a nice clean squish either you know it's gonna kind of hack bits off of them or kind of lobotomized just weird messy head injuries really seems to be a recurring theme in his work <laughs> heck yeah um but yeah so so doppelgangers and mirrors and all that so anyway i may finally be ready to uh, drop the the punisher bomb after all this time so <laughs> so so what i think some people have probably figured it out now if they've uh, managed to <laughs> been taking notes but yeah so he the punisher is fighting billy russo there but it's it's exactly the same thing. Like, there's mirrors, and he's... I mean, there's kind of a... Not quite full doppelganger thing going on with Punisher and Billy, but, you know, everyone's villain is a bit of a doppelganger for them in right, some ways. Right. 
and 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 Punisher like drags his face through the mirror and says, "Take a look at yourself." And I guess in a way he's kind of turning Billy into his own doppelganger. But they're also at a merry-go-round, like exactly like Silent Hill Three. And he's so it's it's yep. you know P- Punisher and Billy are fighting each other on this merry-go-round, and Dark Heather and regular Heather are fighting each other on the merry-go-round, and I'm and. The, just the merry-go-round will be fine. You know, merry-go-rounds are kind of cool places to fight. I get it. But somehow when they've got mirrors brought into it as well, it seems like these these two these two people writing kind of different stories, you know, different media even. It's just weird to have, have kind of exactly the same list of themes all just put together. So um, I don't know quite what to make of that, but it really seems like they're, they're thinking the same things. Sounds to me like the uh, it is confirmed uh, by you, Ken, that the Punisher and the Silent Hill universe are all connected. They're basically in the same universe. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe Punisher is maybe Amy goes on to be Heather or something. <laughs> Proof. Uh, that's awesome. But yeah, I, I, I guess what I'd like to kind of I don't know about so much suggest, but kind of like. Uh, you put this out there with a giant question mark. It sounds like the way that you diagnose and you uh, really break all these themes down and like, sounds like it's very possible that in your horror game, we might be seeing a lot of this. We might be experiencing a lot of this stuff, like doppelgangers and, you know, mirrors and like, uh, you know, double meanings on things. I mean, I, uh, let's see mirrors. I didn't have massive plans for, but I guess, uh, this is not in a blog post. Even I had a bit of a draft for it, but I do have a doppelganger plan for the hero actually. And I've, I've recently figured out, I'm like, it probably doesn't hurt to just drop all the, the ideas in here. This could easily be subject to change, but yeah, I, I did gradually, partly because of Silent Hill as well. Like Silent Hill's got that David Lynch influence anyway. But uh, the plan was... In fact, did I, did I tell you about this before? Is that, I mean, if, if not, you asked the right question anyway. But because uh, we have had a little bit of a conversation before. But yeah, so I, I the idea gradually formed that the hero kind of inevitably had to have a doppelganger, if only because Silent Hill has doppelgangers. And... It just felt, it still felt authentic. It wasn't a case of like, I want it to be like Silent Hill, let's have doppelgangers as well. It was more, it felt like I couldn't not have a doppelganger, if that makes any sense. (laughs) So uh, I gradually figured out, firstly, this doppelganger needs to be left-handed. I spent so long sort of figuring out this simple fact, like, you've got to work out every detail of these characters in some ways. And I realized if, if, if you've got to, if you raise your hand to the mirror, your doppelganger raises the other hand. So I'm right-handed, so my doppelganger will be left-handed. There you so go. So there's that. Hmm. So I, because we, we had to talk about that with my artist because uh, we were working on his uh, the the eels because uh, that was kind of where it began because it started off with the the hero dodging these eels in the basement basically, and He's uh, trying I, to travel down to HR to ask Satan why his <laughs> doppelganger gets paid more than he does. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned I, I office space, so I would imagine he's oh, going to yeah. go down there and be like, "Have you seen my stapler?" We can probably dig into office space as well. Like um, a lot of stuff that's happened in office space is kind of worse now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why it's, it's so durable. You know what I do with a million bucks? Two chicks of the same time. 
I always wanted to do that. <laughs> you can probably do the voice better than me. Yeah, it's also it's a it's a rare movie where I think working class Americans are not portrayed as bumpkins as well. Like a, yeah. Mike, Mike Judge doesn't seem to be one of those kind of stuck up Hollywood types. He's, he's actually portrays working class Americans in a somewhat positive light, right? And you suddenly realize how rarely that happens. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I, I did want to have a doppelganger, and I thought the. Uh, because the hero was dodging these eels, somehow the idea came to me of having kind of a dark wizard who could conjure and control the eels. And uh, somehow I thought of Wyndham Earl in Twin Peaks as well. I think it was the suits. Yeah. Everybody was wearing suits. And everyone wears suits in David Lynch's stuff as well, because I think David Lynch doesn't feel right unless he's wearing a suit. He uh, he does not like his collarbone to be exposed, apparently. <laughs> that, that's on record. He just feels more comfortable in a suit. And uh, so I, something kind of coalesced about Windermill and uh, Windermill's tie as well, actually, because because uh, the thing is, I think Agent Cooper is the good guy, and he's he has this very well-adjusted tie, but uh, Windermill is is kind of the his murderer doppelganger in a way, and he. Uh, because what normally happens with these characters pretending to be good is there's something that gives them away, right? And in, in Windermill's right. case, his tie is... I'm not sure he's even wearing his tie, but if he is, his tie is sloppy. Right. So, so just the fact that he hasn't done up his tie is like <laughs> the, the mark of evil upon him. That's just, that's just proof that he's a, a false angel right there. <laughs> so, I, so, so first I wanted to have this guy with a, a loose tie and be kind of Windermill. But uh, also, I thought he ought to be able to conjure and control the eels. So, so to begin with, he might even be exploring the the basement in this game, kind of thinking. Actually, I'd kind of rather be this cooler guy who can control the eels than this loser dodging the eels. And I kind of wanted that feeling to begin with. All right. Well, I guess uh, I, I kind of want to bring things to a close, Ken. I've really, really enjoyed your time uh, listening to you and Josh go back and forth, man, about some of the creative stuff. Has been awesome. Uh, I, I I really enjoyed it. But I kind of want to know, you know, I, we've obviously we want to kind of end pushing your current game that you're working on and you know, directing people to some of the work you've done. But I got to ask with the code name Scary Town, you know, this this horror themed game you're, you're, you're you know, developing that you're in the early stages of what type of perspective are you going for? Are you doing like a third person you know, fixed camera behind the character? Are you going to go for something more like uh uh, I guess fixed down. camera in nature to where like old school Resident Evil Silent Hill to where the camera is positioned in an area and doesn't go anywhere like what are you um, going for that is honestly that's still kind of undecided this is this has been uh, this has been another weird experiment for me because uh, normally I go with the gameplay first mm-hmm. but in, in this I mean, so much of these things depends on what you start with What what's the real linchpin you know what's the first decision that everything else is going to revolve around so it's more about the feelings I want to evoke and stuff. With Super Space Galaxy, I knew exactly what the perspective was going to be. It's this kind of overhead thing on your your ship going around the galaxy. The camera zoars in your ship. That was uh, easy enough. But this, when I've got a couple of things, I mean, because Silent Hill 4 starts off with a first-person bit of you wandering around the haunted apartment. It's almost like right. this big tease of, oh, has Silent Hill gone first-person? And actually, no, it hasn't. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't. <laughs> no, it hasn't. And also, I think you're, you're actually somebody else in that sequence, it turns out. You're not old, boring 
whatever his name is. <laughs> Worst <laughs> or, or character Mr. of all time. Yeah, yeah or Mr. Bland. <laughs> or Mr. Empty Cipher. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, so I guess the truth is I don't really have a straight answer for you. It's That has not been decided yet. And contrary to my usual principles, I'm kind of thinking about the, the story and the themes first, even though I'm mostly kind of... I put story at a pretty low priority in most games. Like, I think the the best games quite often have terrible stories, and that's fine. Like, if... I mean, Devil May Cry cinematics and stuff can be fun, but I skip them pretty much after I've seen them once normally. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> but but this one, I am kind of doing themes and story and stuff, but even then, I think the themes in the story aren't all going to happen in cutscenes. They're going to happen in the gameplay, hopefully. But, um... Because I've had a couple of different visions on this. I imagined the office from kind of an isometric perspective, and I don't know how that would work. Somehow over the shoulder of Resident Evil 4, if, if I had to, if you had to twist my arm and come up with my best guess so far, I think over the shoulder of Resident Evil 4 would make a lot of sense for what I'm imagining. Thank I've you. got a bit of a scene where you, you try to go into the women's toilets, I think. <laughs> just because I used to work somewhere where... Uh, that's right, because it, it's technology companies, really. I, I worked in a lot, a lot of technology companies, and of course, when you're at a technology company, most of the workers are going to be male. But uh, what they what they do is they still just kind of blithely have one male toilet and one female toilet because right. so because you, you've got to have both, right? But of course, it just means the the ratio is all kind of lopsided. So I think we uh, <laughs> we had a situation where. I th- I forget if you could or couldn't use the female toilets even. It sort of doesn't matter either way, does it? But I, I just remember the feeling I had going into the uh, the female toilet and using that and just sort of feeling a bit wrong. So oh, I, my gosh. That's um, so th- funny. <laughs> yeah, and there's something about that in Deus Ex as well, which helps. But uh, So I, I figured maybe that was because I was, I was thinking about this project even then. I thought maybe we could have a toilet monster that comes out. Like we have some of this in the office world. And then when the hero goes near the women's toilets and he goes in this something like uh something like the laura monster in uh in evil within that's one of the best monsters oh, yeah, anyway, yeah, some yeah. sort of horrible shrieking female apparition yeah. crawls out of the toilet and comes ambling towards him and I, I figure if she gets close actually you just sort of she blinks out of existence because it's early in the game but uh I, I think all that would work fairly well in the kind of resident evil 4 ish perspective that's very nice. Very nice. All right. The next question I got for you, I guess I kind of want to end with this. Um, with uh, You said Super Space Galaxy is going to be on Steam. Yeah. Once, I mean, obviously, you've got a long ways to go before you get there. But once you get there, is there any plan or possibility of it coming to console? Or is that kind of it is might that too do, big yeah. scope? Um, I don't really know a whole lot about getting games onto consoles, but I see people who have done it, and uh, I could probably just send them a Twitter message if I wanted to. Really, it's one of the nice things about this. So, uh, uh, if this you know if this continues to take off and everything, if if things continue to go well for Super Space Galaxy, then yeah, I think it it would actually make a lot more sense with a controller anyway. I mean, I've I've got mouse and keyboard and controller controls in there i've been careful to have oh, as many different cool. kinds of controllers i can from the get-go because i i implemented joystick controls kind of midway through super space Gala- uh, super space slayer 2 and that was manageable but it was kind of tough so yeah eventually this could easily be on a console it's certainly suitable for it now i got i got one more question this one's this one really does cater to the loot bros audience and uh to me personally but 
Yeah. Uh, whenever you program in your uh, like Steam achievements, and then you know, if hopefully one day like your PlayStation trophies and your Xbox achievements, things like that. Do those things kind of matter to you? Are you like in a trophy achievement kind of guy, or is that kind of like, let me get through all the other stuff and then I'll I'll worry about that stuff? Um, I'd, I'd say normally, let's see, but my kind of archetype for achievements would be something like normally I'm just trying to win the game to begin with. That's phase one. You play the game. If, if the achievements are really prominently displayed, like StarCraft Two, <clears throat> isn't even Steam achievements. It's just Blizzard achievements, but. I did kind of like playing the missions in hard mode and getting the hard mode achievements and stuff for that. I've got like at least 90%, I think, in all the campaigns in StarCraft 2 for achievements. But uh, So it's tricky because on the one hand, you figure achievements are genuine achievements, right? So you think not everybody has them. What I find in practice is if you just win the game normally, about half the achievements get unlocked. Right. So they're kind of fake achievements. They're a bit video gamey. And and the remaining half are going to be hard. And sometimes the just two or three are so super hard that I don't want to do them. Or, or one of them even has online play on a game that right, now doesn't right. doesn't have a server, so you can't unlock it anymore. And what's up with that? So I it, and I'm kind of split on this because ideally I'd like to be able to get a hundred percent on a game I'm really into, while still actually getting it, not wasting too much time doing it. Right. But but also, you kind of have to wonder if you can 100% it, were any of those even really achievements? Or would you rather have some achievements but not other ones? Because I've actually talked about falsification and stuff in my uh, most recent blog post. You, you, you could argue it's a better achievement if somebody doesn't have it. So uh, uh, I, I guess I, ideally, just from a kind of fun perspective, then I guess I'd say finishing the game normally gets you about half the achievements. Then you can kind of just do weird things in your second playthrough to get the other half and and then maybe there's kind of one or two at the very end that are tough but doable that's probably what i find the most fun just just outside of whether it's appropriate to call them achievements right yeah i would say the best achievement trophy lists are the ones to where they push you to play things a little different than you would naturally you know like yeah uh, and certainly like Dark Souls 2, I think I did a... Because normally in Dark Souls, I like to have a big dumb shield. But I gave myself a a guy with a big sword and no shield in Dark Souls 2 and had a great time just kind of adapting to that. So I think setting yourself some rules can can force you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Josh, is there anything else you want to ask uh, while we have Ken? No, I think we've kind of covered everything uh, pretty well. It's been a really great uh, conversation. I've I've loved hearing uh, your your perspective on things, Ken. It's been really fun. Yeah, having thanks, you Josh. With us. I can tell we have a lot of common ground on well, all, all sorts of things. Punisher and David Lynch and all sorts of things. And we'll, we'll probably <laughs> uh, we'll probably end up uh, talking about short stories and demons and things later. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it, man. Awesome, awesome. Well. Ken, thank you for coming on. Josh, thank you for coming on, guys. I'm, Absolutely, I, man. I really, I do feel blessed yes. to have this <clears> opportunity <throat> to to hang out with guys like you guys, you know, and talk shop, talk games, uh, talk spooky stuff. I think it's very cool. Uh, if you're listening to this, we will have all of Ken's links, links to his blog, links to his work, uh, links to his personal home address, all of his favorite foods, all that stuff in the show notes. 
uh, please follow Ken on the socials. Check out any of the any of the stuff that he's got. He's put out. Uh, leave you know reviews. If you guys enjoyed us bringing a game dev onto the show, uh, let us know, and we will most definitely continue to do this. Ken, as your progress starts to get higher and higher, you get closer and closer to releasing this game. We will have you back if you will come back on the show. Talk no, about no, gladly, your work. Yeah. Yeah, and something I've watched. Uh, yeah, we could talk about. Uh, I've got a list. I mean, I've done some of the things on the list. But I've, I went into a second side there, so we've got plenty we can still talk about. Absolutely, awesome. Well, I think this has been great. This has been the Loot Bros Podcast. We will catch you guys next time. Yeah, I'm broken. Broken. Whoa. Whoa.